Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare Conversations About Horror. I am Catherine Troyer, and I am delighted, as always, to be joined by Anthony Tresca. Well, hey there. Hey there. Ooh, two oh, hey there's. That's exciting. Two hey there. <laughs> I, I spooked myself. I, 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 I don't know if you I did. <laughs> Obviously, the, the, the listeners couldn't see this, but I like repelled. Yes, I saw second. that. In fact, I thought hey. something was like wrong for a moment. <laughs> it was a cry for help. It was someone trying to speak through me. Excellent. Well, good, because this is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic. As we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible, in this case, Anthony's second hey there, uh, each episode <laughs> looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we're so, so thankful that you stuck around even past this horrifying intro, because our discussion today is over 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And as horrifying as this film is, it will not compare to that intro. No, nothing can. Unfortunately. Nothing can. this film uh, at the suggestion or request of a listener which is always exciting Mm -hmm. um which should again uh, like here's your psa for the day uh to contact us and if you don't have social media you can always send us an email you can let us know Mm -hmm. not only uh what you would like to hear us talk about but also just say here's where you guys were incredibly wrong um we're we're down for all of that but i i don't know if we hadn't gotten this um recommendation or request if i would have uh, suggested this film for us to watch because I don't like watching this film. Yeah, I, I this is uh, not one that I had ever checked out because although I know that it is incredibly important to the genre and I knew that it was a very, very influential film that a lot of people really held in high regard, it never personally appealed very much to me. It looked like kind of a generic slasher um, even though I know it was completely, uh, genre-defying at the time and really set the stage for slashers to come, I prefer a slasher that's just a little bit, it's got another genre on top of it usually, like either a comedy or you put it in a weird location, um, I, and this didn't really seem to be doing any of that, but I am glad I watched it. Yes. Uh, for the first time for this podcast. And I'm super glad that we're talking about this film. So thank you very much for that suggestion. Um, because mm-hmm. the the truth is, is that what makes this film so effective is how difficult it is to watch, right? It is this this unrelenting, um, just like devastating. It's, it's disgusting in all the ways it's supposed to be. And you and I have talked before about other films, um, and I'm thinking particularly of like the exorcist where, where we can recognize mm-hmm. its place. Um, we can also say that we're not a big fan of it, but then we also had to add that we just didn't think it was a very well-made film. Right. Whereas this one, I can say right. this film needs to be part of the, the discussion always. And when it comes to horror, because like you said, um, now we're like, man, you know, well, they have this element of the slasher and this element of the slasher, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it's Texas Chainsaw made those things elements that later slashers adapted. So, you know, it's, it's yeah. pivotal. And even though it's not something I'm ever going to put on when I'm like, just feeling the need to watch something for fun. Um, it is a well made film because it does everything it attempts to do. Um, and that is, is it's trying to, to make you feel overwhelmed and disgusted and traumatized Mm -hmm. um and there's just some beautiful cinematography it's a tight film um yeah you know so there's there's so much that's right about it it's just it's so right in what it's doing i just can't connect to it yeah i mean it's a very very bleak film it doesn't give you a lot to really emotionally grab onto and obviously that's incredibly intentional uh to just kind of I mean, this whole film can be read as a critique of many, many different systems. And as our, we'll 
We'll discuss it in the scholarship today. This is one of those examples of horror really reflecting the social consciousness and the zeitgeist of what's going on at the time. Um, so it, it, I think it's by intent that it is this bleak, but it still doesn't make for exactly a super fun, casual watch. No, not not for me it, at least. I, you know, and I think <laughs> there are people for whom it is their sort of like go-to comfort horror. Um, and I think I find that so exciting the way that that like different cups of tea for different folks uh i just yeah you know and and again what i appreciate about this film is that every time i watch it um so the first time i watched it i was i was pretty young not not as young as some people get into horror but you know i think we were like 12 or 13 um and we were like this is oh wow yeah well (laughs) Maybe I was a little older. Maybe I was like 15 or 16. I don't know. Time is meaningless to me. But but either way, I was still <laughs> in high school. I was still young enough that I'm not entirely sure how we rented it. Um, mm-hmm. But I just remember being so, like, grossed out even before we got to the the house, right? Like, I remember just being grossed out Yeah, pretty much in those first couple of minutes. But even just, like, the van, right, uh, is so claustrophobic. Um, and when the hitchhiker joins, you know, he's just so off, you know, like pudding, right? Intentionally so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just like, I remember being like, I'm not sure I really want to watch this. So I think that's actually, we ended it before it, we even got to the house. Cause I don't think I saw that the first time around. Um, and, yeah. Oh, wow. And so like, you know, it's just every time I watch it, right. I, I just have a better appreciation of, of what it is and what it's doing for the genre. Um, and that's not mm-hmm. something you can say about, about every film. So let's. Let's start with some of the, like, I think we need to start with the scholarship today, right? Like, really kind of yeah. just get started. It's particularly because that's where I think a lot of the this film does works really well. I think the more you think about this movie, the more impressive and interesting it becomes. Where Because, I mean, it is a very heady, for, all, for as gory and kind of, I mean, it's a, obviously an exploitation film, uh, one of a very good one at that. But it's also incredibly intellectual in a way that not a lot of horror films are always explicitly. Yes, and I think it's a combination of of that, the sort of intellectual angle, as well as the fact that even though this is an exploitation film, and even though there's very little blood, right, and that was more an issue of production that value than than not. Um, you know, this is a film that has been banned for very, very long periods of time, as, as probably our listeners know. 25 years. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know. In some parts of Europe. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an incredible amount of time. Um, and of course, you know, it makes sense considering Germany's history that, that they're particularly sensitive about what they allow people to watch. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, uh, I think it's that combination of the intellectual elements uh, with, again, like you said, this sort of exploitation nature that makes it really hard to just dismiss, right? This isn't the, mm-hmm. the campiness of, of Evil Dead. Um, this is, no. and you know, this isn't a film where you can be like, well, it's pretty much just soft porn that just happens to have some death, right? There, there's no um, real, there's, there's you know, hints about sex, but there's no sex scenes. There's no um, nope. nudity or anything like that. The closest that they get to the nudity is that scene with the hook. Yeah. Which... And it's that it's mostly just the bare back exactly uh, yes. in that shot, rather than anything explicitly resembling conventional nudity. Exactly, um, and so I think I think that's what makes this film. I think that's what's created such strong reactions. So the place I want to go, because you could open up almost any horror scholarship book that's talking about horror of the 70s and they're going to have if not a chapter on texas chainsaw um at least several pages devoted to it so i really could have like walked over blindly to my bookcase grabbed a book and 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 you know started discussing what they were talking about but the person i want to talk um about the scholarship that he's looking at texas chainsaw um is robin wood and robin wood is a really really important name in horror film um, scholarship as well as just film scholarship in general. So he passed away in in 2009, but in his uh, lifetime, he changed the game. So this is going to, this, every time I think about this, it sounds like so, so crazy to me that there was ever a before time, but his, 
uh, he wrote a book in 1965 on Hitchcock, and he basically said we need to be examining the works of Alfred Hitchcock much more um, critically and theoretically, and we need to be doing all of this. And before that, that wasn't happening, right? Like now, there are so many books on, on Hitchcock and, and his life uh-huh. and his films, um, but Wood was really the first to say we need to look at the, the um, director, we need to understand what's happening in the legacy, and he was really interested in, in trends, right? So... He, he very famously said that to study the evolution of a genre is to study the evolution of a national, and then he put in parentheses the word un, so unconsciousness, right, or consciousness. And so he said, and he's the reason we take horror scholarship seriously, that like we have these films and if we look at the patterns, what's coming out in 1960s and 1970s horror, we're going to start seeing some really interesting things about America and about how America is understanding itself. And so he devotes a significant amount of time to talk uh, particularly about Texas Chainsaw. So you may hear uh, on, I don't know if it'll show, show up on the recording, but I'm going to be flipping through pages. Um, so this this is his uh, collected essays and reviews on the horror film. Uh, and it's just, it's just such a good book uh, as it's kind of, you know, collected all of his thoughts and feelings. But the, the sections on Texas Chainsaw, so... One of the things that I think is is very interesting is he talks about the, quote, hideous parody of domesticity that is in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he says, you know, we have it in a couple of different ways. We have it in the the pairing of the off of the um, young couples. Right. And the fact we have a brother and sister. But then then has as is to be expected. We also have uh, the, the Sawyer family. Um, and he says, you know, it's... and particularly in that final scene in which they put on the, all the co- like a uh, Leatherface puts on the costume yes. to dress up as this grotesque version of the housewife. Yes, and there is a shot in the film um, where we're seeing things from Sally's perspective, and she's looking down uh, across the table at the Sawyer family that looks almost identical to Norman Rockwell's 1941 painting, um, Freedom from Want, right? So Freedom from Want is that painting that you've undoubtedly seen before, where it's the family gathered together for what looks like um, Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, right? And they have the turkey and everyone's seated there. And we have the mom and the grandmother and the happy children and the curtains are beautiful and the house looks nice, right? And it's part of his um, Freedom series. He has four of them. And it is a near copy right just a perverted uh, twisted copy and so i think it's it's really important that that we are seeing the american family just maybe not the american family we want so he talks about how it's this obscene parody of the traditional family unit and devotion um because we have you know everyone's dressed up for dinner <laughs> but the dead grandfather you know has to like drink human blood to come back or the apparently dead uh, grandfather um and so he he talks about that the part that I find really interesting is he actually devotes a, a whole uh, reading to it, uh, to Massacre specifically, and he's kind of comparing uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre with The Omen, um, and he's saying that what the Tex- what Texas Chainsaw does is it gives us these important aspects we need to consider. He says the first one is the image of the terrible house, which stems from a long tradition in American and Western capitalist culture. And traditionally, it represents an extension or objectification of the personalities of the inhabitants. And he talks about the fact that in Texas, we get two. We get the house that is, um, like, really gone to seed. Um, and that's Sally and Franklin's yeah. grandparents' house. Sally remembers being a kid there. And yet it's now, you know, like, it looks like it's been abandoned for 60, it's completely 70 years. Yeah, it's completely yeah. dilapidated. So we have to ask ourselves... What would have caused um, them to abandon this house, right? And and we kind of have to understand that, like, well, the slaughterhouse closed, and that's where the grandpa worked. And if there's no work, there's no food. Um, traditional sources of food. If there's no food, um, there's uh, and no money, then there's no house, right? And so he's really interested in this idea of the um, Sawyer family as he says, quote, representatives of an exploited and degraded proletariat. And Anthony, I'm going to pause there because I feel like you are much more interested in the like proletariat and the sort of like capitalist commentary of this film than I am. And then I'll come back to some other things that Wood says. Yeah. 
I mean, Wood talks directly about them being victims of industrial capitalism, Leatherface and the family. I mean, with the most obvious place being that they were previously workers of this plant who have now been rendered completely obsolete due to technological advances. And I mean, just that alone right there gets at the heart of a lot of what I think this film is about. It just inverts the relationship. They have been um, screwed over yeah. by industrial capitalism and put out of a job. And they had been previously been exploited by them and were thus in power. And now they reverse the relationship. Now they are the exploiters who are operating on other humans as if they were animals, uh, just reversing this pattern of industrial capitalism around horrific results and forcing humans to be on the direct receiving end of the exploitative nature of it, which is a, I mean, for a film that is banned in so many countries just for its violence, I think probably maybe what it's really being banned for is the violence in conjunction with some of these other ideas. Yeah, so the the scene where we get to see the slaughterhouse, right, and, uh, you know, Hoover actually, like, takes us amongst the, the cows, um, reminded mm. me quite a bit of um, the the Russian 1925 film Strike, right? Um, by Sergei Eisenstein. Um, so Sergei Eisenstein uh, creates this film Strike that's about um, a strike, right? It's about a group of people who decide to strike. And, and he makes what cannot at all be seen as, as uh, anything like, you're not like, I wonder if this is a relationship, right? Like he makes it so explicitly clear in his images that he is comparing the masses of workers to the animals being slaughtered. And since it's 1925 and Russian, they actually are literally slaughtering the animals on the screen. It's, it's really traumatizing, but like it, it cuts back and forth yeah. between those right through this montage sequence. Um, and, and this film, Texas Chainsaw, you know, doesn't go as far as, as Strike did uh, in making that point, but it goes in through that it, particular imagery, but it, it gives us that, right? It lets us know, like, should we, um, are we the people, um, you know, doing the slaughtering or are we the people waiting to be slaughtered? Yeah. I mean, Toby Hooper does talk about how this is a film about meat. Yes. <laughs> um, and it just reminds us that, just from, I mean, reminding us of that fact that we are doing this to a bunch of farm animals in this cruel, heartless way. Look what happens when you're on the other end of this. This metaphorical chainsaw yeah. slaughtering stick. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and the the thing that Wood talks about that I find really interesting is is that how much of this film builds this uh, sense of, of ambivalence towards this family's monstrosity. Because like you said... Um, you know, the film, I don't think, tries at all to make us question whether or not we should try cannibalism. Um, so it's definitely, mm -hmm. like, anti-cannibalism. But For sure. For but sure. it also... <laughs> a very bo a bold, brave yeah, stance. Yeah, you know, something that you don't see a lot, anti-cannibalism <laughs> stances. Um, but the thing that's, that's interesting is, like you said, we have to remember that this family... Um, it's made explicitly clear that they didn't just wake up one day and say, you know, I don't really want the turkey slices we have in the fridge. Let's go out and see what we can find, right? This is a, a needs must mm -hmm. sort of situation. Um, and there are other things, right? Um, you know, we see that like they have a real uh, waste not want not philosophy where where everything yeah. gets used again. And, 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 and that's an actual, that's like a real American ideal, right? Like to like be um, scrap scrappy and to you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps um and we see all of that they're artistic in a really gross way um mm -hmm. and i think you know the film makes me disgusted by their home because it looks so dirty and it just looks like it smells so bad in there um but if they you know but again there's a lot of um art right and, and thoughts going into that uh, again the family is a family unit they have dinner every night together mm -hmm. as a family which is you know, great. So there's this weird ambivalence that I think is very much, like you said, tied to this issue of capitalism. Yeah. And, and large, and I guess also related to the tension between genres at play here and the tension explicitly between the horror and the comedy yes. genre that's at play here, because so much of this film can also be read as, I mean, pretty direct 
parody in some places where it's it's so outrageous that satire is it's satire feels too coded yes because <laughs> it's just more out in the open like a like a parody film in places particularly with like that final the dinner scene yes. that you're talking about where it's the parody of like an american sitcom-y type of family it is. with the the gas station father figure the killer is like this housewife like we've talked about and then the hitchhiker is kind of like the youth the angsty kid yeah uh it really is and you know i mean we we even have the like the patriarchal figure uh you know the sort of like desiccated grandpa is like sitting in his version of the recliner right like i mean it's you're so right and and that and i'm so glad you talk about that because you and i have talked about the fact that we really like horror comedy which this this is not. Yep. This is not horror comedy in the in not in the way not that, that we um I think appreciate horror comedy, but this is horror and comedy, right? Um and Wood talks about this in a couple of things. He actually compares it with a, a like a completely delightful non-horror movie, uh, Meet Me in St. Louis, which also has like a family dinner scene and stuff. And he says, "But this of is course. a comedy, Texas Chainsaw is a comedy of despair." Um and I I want to read and this is the last uh, thing that I'm going to read specifically from Wood, but he talks about the fact that, you know, uh, the film's sense of fundamental horror is closely allied to a sense of the fundamentally absurd. The family, after all, only carry to its logical conclusion the basic, though unstated, tenet of capitalism, that people have the right to live off of other people. And then he says what's interesting is to watch the way that, though, that like, as this film has become sort of a cult classic, how we how audiences uh, engage with this film because he said he watched it recently, whatever that meant uh, with half stoned youth audience who cheered and applauded every one of Leatherface's outrages against the representatives on the screen. And he says it was a terrifying experience because, you know, these um, people were cheering essentially for the death of their stand-ins, right? Sally and Franklin uh, and et cetera. And so he says that this should not be seen as an isolated phenomenon, it expresses with unique force and intensity at least one important aspect of what the horror film has come to signify. The sense of a civilization condemning itself through its popular culture to ultimate disintegration and ambivalently celebrating the fact. That's such a, that's so good, by the way. I just want to point out that's very, that's, that's very lucid prose. That's so yeah, good. Yeah, so, so let's read it again because I also just kind of can't read today apparently um so this film shows an important aspect of what the horror film has come to signify the sense of a civilization condemning itself through its popular culture to ultimate disintegration and ambivalently celebrating the fact right so what's interesting is that you know i don't i don't think most people who watch this film today are necessarily rooting for sally franklin kurt and the others. I can't remember Jerry and yeah. the girl who gets hooked. Um, most people are, are rooting, I think, for for uh, at least Leatherface um, because he's the one that's kind of like toted as the, the hero of the film in terms of like media, right? Um, and in terms of like mm-hmm. the shirts. No one wears a Sally shirt. People wear a Leatherface shirt. Um, and, and that's really interesting because if you think about it, this is essentially an uh, home invasion narrative uh, where the teenagers are invading the home of the Sawyer family and the Sawyer family are just defending themselves and then making sure that nothing goes to waste because like all of the yeah. teenagers are like, Oh look, there's a house. Let's wander on in and see if we can find what we need. Right? Like now admittedly they're not wandering into like steal money or to like, rape people, which is what a lot of home invasion narratives are doing uh, or saying, but but this isn't that far away from from that. They want gas. No. And gas is a form of, of you know, capital. Of, ca- of capital. Yeah, absolutely. It really, I hadn't thought about it through the lens of being a home invasion film, um, but I think that's a fantastic labeling of it. it. It is in a lot of ways. I mean, you can see you can really see it in modern home invasion narratives, how much this film has shaped it. Like you, you can't look at the strangers without being like, this would not have existed without Texas Chainsaw Massacre. From everything to 
exactly what you just said to even that real world element that the film that this film starts with and so does this and so does the strangers later on which is i think it does the texas chainsaw massacre does that element the real world element that it's tries to pin itself as a real story a lot better than the strangers yes. is able to do it later on or other films who have tried to do it later on because this one has a very clear and specific reason that makes sense textually and outside of the text even, I think, as to why they are trying to make this seem as if it's a real film. I think that's such a good point. So, in fact, I want you to, to elaborate on it. So you say, and I agree, but I want to hear your, your answer. Yeah. You say that the film like makes it so that there's a need for it to be said as this like based on a true story. What to you is added to this film by having that layer? I think it's the sensationalized, the sensational nature of the film that gets added to it. I mean, Toby Hooper talked talks a ton in interviews about how this is a reaction to the direct lies that were coming from the news and the government at the time, particularly around issues of like the Vietnam War. That was the one that he mentioned over and over again and the sensationalism that was being seen for the first time in newspapers in reporting grisly, violent deaths that were often, as you would mention, not entirely true. Uh, like he mentioned a string of um, murders that were occurring in San Antonio that were really popularized in the newspaper. And he was like, that is something that he really took inspiration off of. And he was like, I, did, I'm just going to lie to people. And, and that, because that in and of itself is some, is a horror that we experience every single day. And whether the lies themselves are directly true doesn't ultimately matter. It doesn't change the reality that we are all experiencing. Yeah. And I think that that is why in this film it does make a lot more sense than it does in some other films where it just feels kind of tacked on. Like an element of like, is this just a reference yes. to this or is this... Do you have a reason independent of and that? And I, I think that, you know, um, so so the opening narrator, you know, does say like, you know, um, this is the story of these characters specifically, you know, and the fact that they're not going to make it and all that good stuff. But but there is a there is truth to the part um, where this is a version of America, an extreme version, right? But But that has been brought about by... The things that were going on at the time right so yeah. i think the other reason that i'm okay with that is that i need to be reminded as the viewer not that you know that that's that this actually happened to sally franklin etc but that um or even that people have resorted to cannibalism as their way to like provide food but the fact that that we have cr created this system of operation where people are told explicitly the way to thrive um, is to eat figuratively, um, eat each, each other. other, right? I mean, let's, let's look at the number one model that we have today of that, which is Jeff Bezos, um, you know, like who has made it explicitly clear. I read an article recently that was saying that Amazon is going to start using or has started using, um, robots to hire and fire people based on an algorithm right so it has and like you know and it's like one of those sort of impossible algorithms um you know like that's certainly a less uh bloody version of things but it's still a very uh you know the the disenfranchised the proletariat um being forced to make decisions that nobody is drawing attention to right so the news is talking about the desecration of, of dead bodies which is terrible and sad and, and and all that stuff but those bodies are also dead nobody's Nothing's going to happen. It doesn't talk about the act, speak to the actual harm that is being perpetuated exactly. within the system exactly. itself. Exactly. There's no like, hey, the slaughterhouse closed, right? It completely ignores it. Yeah. And focuses just on the aftermath of of these events without exam. It's a, it really does reflect, I think, the shallow nature of how news is portrayed in which you focus only on the violent end result but don't dedicate nearly enough time to explaining the reasons why this happened. It's not, it's never about that. It's only about what bleeds because that leads. Oh, that's lovely. Um, yeah. And, and you can see that. I think a really good example of that is, is the first couple of minutes. So the first couple of minutes are just 
They're so gross. Um, but they're gross. They're really gross. Be, for a couple of reasons. One of the things that's really interesting about that sequence um, is that the first the first sounds that you're hearing of what sounds like, you know, bodies being dug up doesn't match what you're seeing, right? So there's there's uh, this already this sort of uncomfortableness because you're experiencing something different with different um, senses. But then when we start to get to that, you know, iconic sound of the, the light, uh, the flash going off, right? And we see all these glimpses. I think you're absolutely correct. The only things we get to see are the, the grotesque after effects, right? We don't get to see the like closing of the slaughterhouse and, you know, people looking for additional work. We just see the decaying, decrepit, super disgusting bits and pieces left over. Yeah. And I think in this other real world, the element to it really works because the this whole film is it's really rooted in the fact that it could all happen. It very much feels like this is just something that is right on the the edge of happening. This kind of like anarchistic manner of living that eventually might have to resort to. It kind of feels like, it kind of really does feel like that in a really grody, disgusting kind of way. Yeah, so one of the things that I think this film does with having that sort of like really disgusting sort of element of, of the Sawyer family in their home and all that stuff um, that I, I think can be a problem um, and I think has become a problem in, in horror cinema um, is the sort of monsterization of the other and the others defined as the poor and the rural, right? So, you know, we're supposed to side with the, the city folk, you know, the clean folk, um, the, the very white folk, um, and, and even though we're supposed to see that, that they shouldn't have to be warned, right? Like if they're told like, you don't need to go there, you shouldn't worry about that, that they have every right to do that. Right. We're supposed to kind of read mm -hmm. the film that way. I think if, if we're supposed uh, well, to see them as, if we're supposed to see them as our, yes. our, um, heroes. Right. Um, but I right. think, right. and I saw you like starting to pause, right. I think one of the great things is that, um, this film, and it's not continued onward, I think that's the problem. This film does create a little bit more ambivalence, right? Because again, if we go to that home invasion element, right, they are told, yeah. don't, don't, you don't need to go here. This is not yours. Don't do yeah, this. You don't need to, to access this. The reason why I think the re it also feels so real and like this co is just on the edge of happening is technically, particularly in Texas where property laws are strong, Everything that the family does to defend their home and their property is legal. Is it morbid and extreme? Yes, but it's not a lot different from like a southern guy cocking their gun at you and telling you to get off, get off their property. Um, this is uh, speaking from real world experience. I did actually. I grew, grew up in in uh, East Texas, not Round Rock, where this film was set and shot, <laughs> but. I know where Round Rock is. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was actually thinking about you. Not that like I was like, I wonder if Anthony's had to escape Leatherface before. Not not quite that far, but I was thinking of you in terms of like this film feels so authentically Texan in a lot of ways. Even just like the yeah. like the the scenery shots. Like there's something about the Texas sky that is really just it's wide in a way that um not all uh, states have have that sort of like same expanse like they're just it felt very real and you're absolutely correct there's a law that says you know you can um if someone breaks onto your property and you harm them that's one thing but if they take something even if they took a pencil then you have the right to kill them right like like we have laws yep. like that in place and so um what's interesting and this is i think a mistake that other horror films make so other horror films like wrong turn is a good example um, and they're on like what wrong term number six or something like now, um, you know, <laughs> lots of wrong yeah. turns. You think maybe just by accident, like the sheer odds that maybe they would make a right That's turn. Hysterical. That, that can, that can <laughs> be your like three minute horror film where they're like, should we go left or right? And they're like left and they're like right decision, you know, and then the film ends. Um, but you know, films like that are like hillbillies, gross, creepy, um, you know, poor, defenseless, usually teenagers that, that, you know, just made an accidental mistake. Whereas this one, they, uh, you know, the teenagers are aggressively, um, and going places that they're told not to go. Um, and, and even the, the rural aspects of this film in some ways reminds me of, of films like, uh, Winter's Bone, which admittedly 
is a very different film, right? Um, but it has that same, like, we cannot and should not maybe judge societies within America that we don't understand, right? Like, I yeah. never grew up eating roadkill, but I also never had to grow up eating roadkill. Whereas I know people that did, right? Or I know people that ate barbecued squirrel. And to me, I can't do that because I have a rule that I can't eat anything that I want as a pet. Um, <laughs> um, and I made the mistake once of trying kangaroo and I, it tasted like regret. It was the worst thing ever. Um, so like, Fair so I have, enough. you know, yeah. I, have, so okay. I have that rule, so I can't eat squirrel because of that. But I knew people, I knew people growing, um, lit, not growing up, living in Kentucky that that was just part of their family's um, source of protein, right? And so what's interesting about this film is that, like you said, even though it makes us, again, not root for cannibalism, um, hopefully, it, it doesn't... It doesn't judge the Sawyer family to the degree that I think other horror films that are less sophisticated and less ambivalent um, and more just sort of black and white end up doing. I, I think it's absolutely fitting that you talk about how the Leatherface and family right. <laughs> are portrayed as being so kind of understandable and sympathetic because I, I think it relates back to the metaphor you made earlier about the really rich uh, and the horrific actions that they take, but they're through other means and they're often not as direct. They're indirect actions that trickle down and affect millions of people indirectly because of the choices they make to further their own wealth in the case of like Jeff Bezos to extend that metaphor. But the actions in this, there is no alienation with this family here. They are far more natural and in touch with their roots. And the only reason why we perceive their actions as any more violent um, than the actions of someone like the ultra wealth are because of how direct they are. And I think in our, it really gets back to the idea that as a society and as individuals, we're so alienated from these kinds of actual direct ties that when we see them, we immediately are like, that's so disgusting. That's so horrifying. When in all actuality, it's not any more horrifying or violent than the real world indirect violence that occurs every day. It's just so much more frightening because we like to hide that violence behind other people, other means, technology, etc. That's such a good point. And that's such an important point, um, both in terms of the, the film's narrative on food, right? Because so many of us, mm -hmm. most of us don't kill our own food. Um, and, and most of us, you know, are... What, what makes this film so relevant and timely today is our continued, like, dependence upon farmers and agricultural, you know, workers, but also are increasingly putting them into the shadows, right? We're like, oh, yeah. but we don't actually want to know about how hard it is to be a small farmer. Can we just make sure we have almonds year round? And it's like, well, we can if we like engage in monoculture, like, you know, there's so much, you're so right that we are increasingly removing ourselves from our agricultural roots that actually kind of helped to define our nation, right? Um, and then the, the other thing is, is that, as you said, um, when you talked about violence, right? So as a film that's coming out during the Vietnam War and as a response to the Vietnam War, part of what made that, that um, well, there were, Lots of things made that war very, very problematic. Lots and lots and lots mm -hmm. of things. But, oh, so many. But one of the things that, that that war, that distinguishes that war from some of the, the later wars that we fought um, as a nation is is the the intimacy of it, right? Um, you know, when, when the vets came back, we were so upset because they'd intimately been a part of the killing, right? Like, oh, you killed people up close and personal, but you were around them, you know? And, and there's... We've begun to remove that right through um, like drone strikes and things that we can do that allow us to be removed from the killing in a way that um, the Vietnam War was very cognizant that that war is killing. Right. Um, yeah. And so I think I think you're absolutely correct. That's such an insightful um, way of reading it. And, you know, the 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 thing that Wood talks about, you know, the sort of parody or absurdity of the family unit um, Yes, we are missing the the maternal character because all we have is the the truly dead grandma, um, and you know yes, there's this way in which like Leatherface then becomes this this like stand-in for the mother because he's always wearing the apron like you said, um, and he's you know making the dinner, 
that's another really interesting thing about it that it like acknowledges the fluidity of roles yeah. and when uh and when there's not actual members to fit into that role then you just reshape your family unit to better fit those roles instead of it just embracing yeah your act and so i don't want to say like that 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 family is like the most most progressive because that makes it sound like again i'm being oddly like in admiration of them but you're right we have we have gender fluidity um the the father figure who runs the gas station you know there's that scene where he says i just don't want to be a part of the killing um you know i understand why we need to do this but i, I don't want to be a part of that and there's you know and then the the hitchhiker mocks him for it but like this character has a clearly defined like understanding of who he is in the system and even the like let's have grandpa do it didn't you say he was the best at the game you know i mean there's even this like respect for elders there's a really weird way in which the family even as it's showing us um a parody or an absurd form of family is also telling us that family and the structures we've built are absurd right because you can yeah. slip in and out of them um and that's that's an awful lot to pack into a really short film um that's really just about some people being prepared for dinner like that's a lot i well but i i think that the simplicity of the story itself just like five teen five five youths yes. as the that's that the actual description yes. uh the, they they go into which reminds me of trip. my cousin Vinny. anytime someone says youths i always think of yeah so yeah which is so as five youths go on a trip five five youths uh i don't remember the rest of the tagline verbatim but five youths stuck with me basically five youths go on a trip and then get killed by leatherface it's a very very simple very simple story it's everything around it, the ambiance, uh, the editing that that really allow it to flourish as a horror film. And there are two other things I, I think that are worth mentioning. So one thing we haven't really talked about at all, but uh, if you have the internet and enjoy using the internet, we, I encourage you to just kind of go out there. And that is to read up on like the, the production of this film. Um, because oh like, God. so... Anthony, will you reshare that super gross tidbit that you told me before we started? Well, due to a lot of like budgetary things in this film being made for a, a pretty low amount of money, uh, they cut costs in interesting ways. It was, for example, cheaper to get real human bodies from India than it was to get uh, prop skeletons made. So they had real human bodies, real animals, skulls and things, and carcasses and whatnot all around the set. However, horrifying fact about this, the making of it, is that the cameras that they were using required four times the amount of light that the normal Hollywood cameras did. So that meant that they had to get really ultra, in Texas, where it was mm. in the summer, where it was already hot, they had to get super intense industrial lighting and shine them on these carcasses, which heated up the carcasses and the flesh that was still on the bones and made the whole thing smell, the whole set smell like rotting carcass. Ugh. And it wasn't even just the, the sets and the props that smelled. Um... Uh, there, you know, the actress who played uh, Sally, like several of her costumes got stolen. So by the end, she was just like wearing that same one that was like by the end of production, actually stiff with yeah. uh, fake blood. Um, the actor who played the grandpa, who was actually like a teenager, refused to like constantly be put in and out of his um, makeup. So they had to like do it over like this 30 hour or like some insane, you know, a, a period of time. Um, Leatherface yeah. couldn't take off his mask. Unless they, unless they got to have breaks that were longer than fifteen minutes, and they never had breaks that were longer than five, so he had to like stay in his mask and like it smelled. I mean, like everything, everything yeah. on this production smelled. They, and it it was also just bonkers in some of like, the director first of all, Toby Hooper sounds like a bit of an insane wackadoo because in at least in terms of the dangerous situations that he put the actors in. They used a real chainsaw for half of the shoot, just like with the real blade. And it took the chainsaw coming three inches away from the actor who played Kirk's uh, face for him to be like, hmm, I 
think someone might get hurt. Maybe we should replace yeah, this. These... Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should. He didn't. He, so I keep in mind, they just took the clutch part out. It was still the rest of the real chainsaw. So you could still get hurt from it, like, going around. But the blade wouldn't kill you. Yeah. Uh, you know, these, these low production, uh, like, vision films, and I'm thinking of, like, Evil Dead as well. Um, of course. You know, they... The fil- by the time they like got to production, if the masterminds Sam Raimi, um, Toby Hooper were were sane before, they were certainly not sane by the end, right? Like, and and they're just like it was such an intense, um, like cutting corners, thinking about things, and I think that's that's so fascinating because again, there's I think something to be said about the having to have um, this this sense of ingenuity. So that was the that yeah. was one thing I wanted to make sure we we talked about. I have to quickly say every time I watch this film, I hate Franklin a little bit more. Is that fair? Like yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. He's a weird guy. He's really. I know he gets, he does get put, he's clearly oh, been dealt a pretty yeah. bad hand. What a and like, he terrible gets put trip in some to weird be on. Yeah. Situations. And he's right to complain about that. However, what he's not right to do is be such an a hole yeah. about it. Oh my God. These are your friends. Like, dude, take some time. You should have just, che- you should have honestly just gone out and take a breather by yourself. Don't stay in that space and yell at everybody else. Yeah. That's not cool, honey. <laughs> and he sometimes acts like he's about 12, right? Um, and Yes. <laughs> and I actually read somewhere that um, the actor, Paul Partain, decided to be, did you read that? That he wanted to be so in character that like he was just always complaining that everyone was kind of glad when his character died so that he didn't have to be yes. on set anymore. So, you know, the- well, and the director kept that actor away from the rest of the people, along with Leatherface. Uh, they kept Leatherface away until the first day that the actor shot with them. But they also kept Franklin separated from the rest of the actors to increase the isolation. See, that's what some of the like yeah. kind of weird manipulative director things that he did on the actors where I'm like, little sketch, dude, <laughs> but I guess you got your movie yeah. and it's your art. In the 70s and 80s, right, you could get away with, uh, and 60s, we saw that with Little Shop of Horrors too, right, where he, that he was yeah. like, hey, children, do you want to make a penny? And they were like, yay. So, you know, yes. the things that you could get away with as filmmakers that now it, it's just like, um, let's pretend we didn't do that uh, is, is amazing. Yeah, for all, the, for all the critiques that I do agree with about the the frustrating nature of the civilizing process in America and the alienation that it causes. Um, the civilizing in terms of how we make art is, I would say, good because it means that less people are getting actually abused yeah. and bleeding in the films. Like, they use real blood in some takes Ugh. just because it was cheaper. Like, real people cut themselves on set so they could use the real blood in the shots. Um, that is both disgusting because of the uh, just again i'm thinking about the smell um and just like yeah that's (laughs) and and they did it i think that's the part right like they were like okay well if it's for the art right um so that's just amazing to me so the artist am i right right. (laughs) the last thing i want to say um which is fitting is i just want to talk about the the very last like minute or so of the film right where we have sally covered in blood sitting in the back of that truck um, the sun is coming up. And, and I think this is really interesting because we have another film that came out in 78, right? And that's Dawn of the Dead, where where we have, you know, the end of the film happening as the sun is rising. But what's really interesting about both Dawn of the Dead and uh, Texas Chainsaw is, is we're left with that final question of, you know, yes, a new day has, has literally dawned. Um, yes, they've escaped. But is that such a good thing, right? Because I, I don't think Sally's coming back. From this emotionally um you know i i don't think that this is going to be something where she bounces back certainly the sawyer family isn't bouncing back um and and by extension america right like small class um the proletariat right there this new day is not going to be any better because the the long dark night um has ruined everything right and i just think that's what a really intense way to to end a film by not letting us feel comfortable even as we're watching our you know heroine be rescued and she's literally riding off into the sunrise um it's just it's not happy it's not good yeah i i mean it's only it's only not good 
for that character if you read them as the heroine. Right. Uh, and the one who you are supposed to be rooting for, which as we've discussed on, at great length, is at least uncertain. Right. It's not necessarily uh, that. Well, and if she's not, if she's not, if Leatherface or the Sawyer family, they, they also... Their day has also been ruined, right? Um, because, you know, we've lost several of them. The the families, the home has been invaded. Uh, the do front door is literally not there anymore. Um, so, I, I like, no matter who we're supposed to to see, it's, it's not, yeah. the day is not beginning as this, it's not the dawn of a new um, good moment. It's um, trauma being carried on into the next day. And that's really a fascinating way to, to end a film like this. I think it's also a fascinating thing, way to end this film is with the, the final iconic shot with the, the sun rising, this very natural element, rising in the background uh, with Leatherface dancing with the chainsaw, something incredibly technological and man-made, and this kind of juxtaposition that has been set up throughout a majority of the film of the natural versus the technological, the industrial, and we end on this this these two things being juxtaposed in the same shot and dancing around. It's just a very, very interesting manner to end the film on. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for our discussion of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as you can tell, because uh, this episode's a little bit longer. We had a lot to say. Um, so again, we want to yeah. thank our listener who suggested that we talk next about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, very good, very good recommendation. Yeah, it, it really, I had a great time talking about this film. Um, we're going to shift back, uh, for those of you that are regular listeners, we're shifting back to our uh, discussion and, and venture into the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. And so our next episode is going to be on... Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Excellent. So this is the sixth film um, in the franchise. We encourage you to listen to... Um, any of the other uh, episodes that we have about the, the first five films, although what's lovely, as we've discussed about the Nightmare uh, franchises, is that you don't really have to know what happened in the previous film um, to be able to appreciate uh, the newest film. So that's that's really exciting. Um, Anthony, what else do they need to know from us? Well, they should definitely check out all of our social medias. That's the best way to get in contact with us, and all of those are in the description of this podcast. Either shoot us a recommendation like one of our listeners did, and that's how we got this episode that you're listening to right now. Let us know what you agree with. Let us know what you don't agree with uh, there as well, or in by emailing us, which is also in the description. Uh, and feel free to check out the backlog of some of our older episodes. And then the last thing is, is that we want to make sure that you have, say, Anthony, a spooktacular day.